Welcome to the TD and Riders Room, brought to you by our friends at Keeneland, with racing as it was meant to be. He's TD Thornton. She is Zoe Cadman. I'm Randy Moss. Bill Finley has the week off. When we last saw Zoe, she was in the wilderness. She was either camping or on some kind of a Zen retreat or something. Zoe, nice to see you're back in I civilization. Am. I'm in Saratoga. I never really left Saratoga, but hopefully the Wi-Fi is working just a little bit better this week. Looks like you've moved locations as well. And did I see some silks in the background and a quarter pole? What's, what's going on? Yeah, it's, the, it, it's, a, it's a quarter pole that I ordered from Saratoga. You'll see it in the shot later uh, from where you are right now. And th those are my father's old racing silks from the one horse that he owned in his life that turned out to be a disaster. But yeah, I just kind of did a 180 here in my office. So it's the same office, just from a different direction. And TD, I've, I've wanted to ask you this. We've had you on several times now. The horse, who is the horse in the background? Is it just a random photo or is it a specific horse that I you cannot, can identify? I specifically identify the horse. I can tell by the white. I know it's at Saratoga. I know by the white uh, numeral on the saddlecloth, it was pre when uh, Naira moved over to the colored saddlecloth. So I'm guessing summer of 92 or 93. But I bought it because it was my friend Aaron Grider in the shot. So uh, that's, that's, that's ah, the reason. The horse, I, I don't know. I can go. do a little detective work and maybe figure it out. Okay. We all like Aaron Grider. It's too bad he wasn't on Forte in the Jim Dandy Stakes on Saturday. Let's start off talking about the races this past week and start with the Jim Dandy because of all the controversy. I mean, what a fantastic race it was on the racetrack with Forte running down Saudi crown in the last jump to beat him by a nose, Angel of Empire, only a half length back. Everybody's probably seen it by now. It's a shame that the controversy with the stewards inquiry and the lack of a disqualification uh, might take away a little bit from the great race that the Jim Dandy was. Um, let me just weigh in first real quickly. I actually do have a life apart from this. I went to dinner on Saturday night, tried to stay away from all media, which I do often for football games and horse races. Then I come home and I want to watch it and obviously not know who won. It's more exciting that way. So I successfully did it, came home, turned on the Jim Dandy, watched it and thought, oh, my God, a disqualification in the Jim Dandy. I read has finally gone too far and I kept it running and I was in shock. Absolutely shocked that Forte was not disqualified and placed third behind Saudi Crown and Angel of Empire. Uh, quite frankly, I think it was a disgrace, an absolute disgrace that the stewards at Saratoga didn't take the number down. Um, and that's just what happened on the racetrack. Then there's the whole element of Irad Ortiz and his over the top aggressiveness that is now bordering on danger to other riders. That's another topic that we could talk about for a long time. Well, Zoe, as a former rider, maybe you have the same opinion. Maybe you have a different opinion. What were your thoughts on this? First off, I think we're basically looking for a little bit of continuity with the stewards, right? We saw an episode 
the day before with Irad in the last race with Mike Maker. Seemingly, Irad seems to think there's a sinkhole on the rail, be it the dirt or the turf. In the last race the day before, he squished everyone out of the way and went around and got disqualified. Now, that was not a stake race. It, I think it was a high-level claimer. Got DQ'd off a Mike Maker trainee. And he's going to serve those days this week, Wednesday through Friday. So that was a disqualification. Then we have Forte. And why didn't he stay on the rail? I cannot for the life of me figure out why he had to try and go around. And his reasoning was quite simply that Saudi Crown was coming out and he was on heels. Yes, Saudi Crown did come out. If it was up to me, I'd have took them both down and put Angel of Empire up, who basically got the brunt of all of it. Saudi Crown came out numerous paths. We'll take a look at that. You can see by the tire tracks and his tracks, he came out an awful long way. So if Arad had just stayed on the rail and stayed out of the way, he would have won. There's no question Forte was the best horse. But we are rewarding a guy for winning a stakes race, a graded stake, when we took him down for the same thing in the day before that was just an allowance race. So does it mean it's okay to do that in a stake race? And it's not okay on a Friday, but it's fine on a Saturday? I think that's what we're sending out. And yet, what you know, the disqualification or non-disqualification aside, how about the, the longer-term evolution of Forte? Of course, who won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile last year. He was given just a two-prep race campaign this spring. Uh, there were kind of easy spots at Gulfstream in the Fountain of Youth. The Florida Derby was one of those kind of snatch uh, victory from the jaws of defeat when he was not fully extended. And then, of course, he had the uh, foot bruise that knocked him out on the morning of the Derby, sidelined for a 10-week gap between uh, the Florida Derby win and the Belmont Stakes. I didn't think that was ideal spacing for him to attempt 12 furlongs. But now what have we seen? Uh, Todd Pletcher going to the blinkers, a uh, tightener in the Jim Dandy. And I think it's a useful race. I think Forte is never going to evolve uh, into one of these explosive, big blast-off moves at the quarter pole uh, where he leaves the, the competition reeling in the dust. But he always does just whatever he has to to get his lip up in time at the wire. Now, thanks for steering that back to the horse, TD. Uh, appreciate that. Um, because I think Forte solidified his role uh, in now as the number one ranked three-year-old in America. And I agree that the Blinkers helped Forte. I just think the Blinkers would help Irad Ortiz even more than they would help the horse that he was on. Um, there were some other really fast races at Saratoga this past week. The sprint races. I mean, Wednesday, you had Echo Zulu winning the Honorable Miss in a runaway. Uh, Friday, right? There was New York Thunder in the Amsterdam that won it by seven and a half lengths in amazingly fast time. And then you had the Vanderbilt on Saturday with elite power running down Gunite in the last strides on a sloppy racetrack. TD, those were some really powerful. Yeah, I, I think of the three, I would have to say that the one that uh, carried the most weight for me was New York Thunder's performance. Granted, he caught a little bit of a break uh, at the break when another horse who looked to be the projected to be the main speed on paper didn't go with him. So New York Thunder got out to a lead there, but re he really swatted back the challenge of, of the favorite there, Drew's Gold, and he kicked clear under urging under Tyler Gaffleone. Here's a horse who's four for four, but that was his first win on dirt. So they let him go in the betting in that race, what I believe five to one. He's had a couple of tries on the turf at Gulfstream. He had a try over the synthetic track up at Woodbine. 
And now he's the real deal on the dirt. His six furlong time what basically broke the track record. It would have broken the track record. Now, the 16th of a mile after the six furlong time was not pretty visually to watch. I mean, he, he was staggering, but he's a very fast horse, and I think he paid the price early, but there is no question. He was the fastest horse in the race. It was a terrific effort. Congratulations to George Delgado getting his first stakes win at Saratoga. He was about as pumped up as you're going to see. And I, I can't knock an undefeated horse that runs that fast on this track at Saratoga and beat some really good horses. Echo Zulu for Asmussen is just an absolute pleasure to watch. She has grown up so much in the past few years that we've been watching her. I can't thank the Winchells enough for leaving her in training. I saw Steve on Thursday morning and I just looked at him and I'm like, man, that was awesome. And it takes a lot for Steve to smile some mornings, right? And the smile on his face, he was just beaming. He's like, she is incredible. She is absolutely incredible and she's fast. That's it. And they've decided that's what she needs to do. And she just ran off and hid. Seven and a quarter lengths for her. She was terrific. And then elite power. What, what can you say about that? I mean, to put together a run, eight consecutive races for Hall of Famer Bill Mott on a track that perhaps was not his best surface. Asperson's horse, Gunite, loves that track. And he was laying down at the end, but elite power refused to lose. Glue on shoes, be damned. He got his nose down right when it mattered and showed just what a champion he is. And I, I asked Bill Moss as well. I'm like, well, it's hard to string together eight races, whether you're a five claimer or your greatest six. It's hard just to have not a sick horse going into a race and put a subpar performance. And, and him again was just smiling. He's like, it's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And watching him in the paddock, he's a beast of a horse. He really is. At five years old, he had never been on an off track, which is a little no, never. for a horse that's compiled that amount of starts. And he, he did have his head cocked out towards the grandstand coming off the turn. Took him a little while to uncoil. But wow, when he got going, he showed up. Yeah, he didn't love it. Yeah. And that, and that move from about the three eighths pole to the quarter pole when he just powered up there uh, and then he had to run down Gunite. I mean, that was a heck of a performance. But Zoe, we also had a couple of big races at Del Mar on Saturday, including a grade one sprint, the Bing Crosby. Let's touch on it first. It probably, you know, wasn't as dynamic to watch as, as let's say, the Vanderbilt with elite power and Gunite. But hey, this Calbury had the chosen run, eight straight wins. He just doesn't know how to lose. He right doesn't. Now. And I think the thing that has solidified him being so good to this point is that he had a little two month break. He won a race by nose at Santa Anita and uh, Cruel Jack said, all right, we're going to give him a break. He's obviously come to the end of his rope for this period. They gave him the break and I think he's come back a better horse. He was winless at Del Mar prior to his win in the Bing Crosby. Didn't have the best of trips now. He had to check sharply no. on the turn. Now, I think American Theorem, who was behind him with Joe Bravo, may have took the worst of that and went all the way back to last. But that did stop his momentum. And it just showed what a gutsy little horse he is to get going and win. And you think about it. He's done it on synthetic. He's done it on dirt. He's done it on turf. He is a really cool horse. He's 5-5 five, five this year. They're going to supplement him into the Breeders' Cup sprint where he will face Hopefully, elite power. They'll both get there, both on these win streaks, hopefully. 
And uh, we'll see what happens. It's going to cost him a hundred grand. But hey, he's made five hundred and ten thousand this year alone, and it's a perfect five for five. His owner, uh, Cruel Jack, owns some of him. John Sondrica and a couple of other people. How could you not cheer for that? And he faced a, a good field, but that was a breakout performance for him in my mind. Six across the track at the head of the lane. Anyone could win it. By the time they were inside the eighth pole, they were four across the track. And and I thought that Chosen Braun was not going to be the one who got up there. Yeah. And, and in the San Diego earlier on the card, I was quite frankly a little disappointed, right? I mean, I'm not going to uh, knock Senor Buscador. I would love to own Senor Buscador. I absolutely love it. And he gets up to win a 13 to one, but he's kind of proven on form that he's not really a grade one caliber horse uh, for the Breeders' Cup Classic. Right. And uh, Doug O'Neill's runner up is definitely not a mile and a quarter type horse. He's he's a little bit too eager, really disappointed with defunded. What did you guys think about his race in the San Diego? He loves Santa Anita. That is his course that he absolutely loves. I thought he fought, I don't think he disgraced himself, but he should have been able to beat that bunch. He put forth fast fractions, which he did, but he always does. He always trains terrifically. I don't know if he had an off day. Um, I'm in Saratoga, so I'm not privy to speak to Bob here, but I, I don't know. I thought Senor Buscador got a terrific ride under Franco. His trainer, Todd Fincher, picking up his first stakes win at Del Mar. For those of you that may not have heard of Todd Fincher, Superb horseman, trains a lot out of New Mexico. He's a very, very good trainer indeed. So delighted to see him have the win with a horse who's not an easy horse to train. He's quirky. It's set up very nicely. Things have to go his way. So he gets his first stake win there and he's called him the best horse he's ever trained. So kudos to the connections. But was it a great rendition? No, it wasn't. Yeah, you had a 14 to one horse loose on the lead. The winner, Senor Buscador, was 13 to 1, and he was way off the tailgate, something you don't often see at Del Mar. But on the far turn, when Defunded was being really scrubbed on and not responding, you could tell it was not going to be his day. And then in the stretch, when um, Slow Down Andy came after the pacemaker, Slow Down Andy, ever since uh, I believe late in his two year old season, once he hits the front, he uh, swishes his tail when he gets hit with the stick, and he did it again. There was nobody else rallying, and uh, Senor Buscador just chugging along in time and grounded out. All right, we're just getting started here. As we've mentioned before, the TD and Riders Room brought to you by Keeneland. And Zoe, we had another Keeneland grad Saturday early in the card. Break is made in a two-year-old that really looked Yeah, good. and his name is Heartland, a $575,000 Keeneland September yearling. And, you know, in the biggest scheme of things now, 575 when you talk about horses being purchased for $2 million, $2.5, looks like a steal. And didn't win in typical Bob Baffert fashion. He was way back there and came flying down the rail, rail to just get up in time. He actually ran like a seasoned professional. Usually Bob's horses just display so much pace and they run everyone off their feet. This guy looked like a seasoned professional son of Justify. And how about Justify? I mean, everywhere I turn, there's a winner on turf. There's one in Europe. I mean, he is the sire of the moment. He really is. Hartland is a half to uh, the 2016 two-year-old champ and Breeders' Cup Juvenile Winner Classic Empire. And I believe next up for him, he's going to go right to the Del Mar Futurity. I, I have to wonder, though, how, you know, we don't have much to go on. It was his debut. We all saw him break slowly from the inside and, and make that big, visually impressive move. But 
sometimes you have to wonder, the top two horses were coming back to the field. How much of that visually impressive move was a factor of that um, as, as much as Heartland really closing the gap? Now we have a superb segue, as we do know the TDM Writers Room is brought to you by Keeneland. We have a Keeneland grad. I think I just mentioned his name. His name is Heartland. Bob Baffert trains Heartland, broke his maiden in fine fashion at Del Mar on Saturday, drawing off by more than two lengths. Keeneland is the home of the world's yearling sale. The energy, magic, and momentum of the September yearling sale returns on September the 11th through the 23rd. Learn more at theworldsyearlingsale.com. Group reservations, if you want to go to Keeneland and take all your friends, they are now open at Keeneland for the full meet, which runs October the 6th through the 28th. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar. Reminding us why. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Stone Street. The Stone Street bred Willakea took an allowance on Thursday at Colonial Downs this week. The even money favorite was sent to the front and never looked back en route to a six and a quarter length win. She's the daughter of Canadian sprinter Hillaby. Look for four Stone Street bred colts this week at Saratoga, August the 7th and the 8th. We'll lead off with hip number 77, a quality road colt from the family of Santa Anita Derby winner, Dortmund. They also have hip 92, a Spitestown colt from the family of graded stakes winner, Uncaptured. Hip 135, going to be a busy day for Stone Street Breads, is an inter-mischief cult out of Rachel Alexandra's grade one, do- grade one winning daughter, Rachel's Valentina. And finally, Hip 183 is a cult by Authentic, who is a half-brother to grade one Met Mile winner, Silver State. The guiding focus of Stone Street is to breed and develop quality thoroughbreds with strength, stamina, and class. Stone Street, born to run, to win. And now the fastest horse of the week brought to you by the Fast Sires at Windstar Farm. Think back to 2018. We all remember Justify sweeping the Triple Crown, retiring, being retired after the Belmont Stakes. That September, a new two-year-old moved into Baffert Stable at Santa Anita and took the stall previously occupied by Justify. Like Justify, this was a chestnut. Like Justify, common ownership, right? A lot of the same owners involved in the two horses. And Bob Baffert explained that the horse was named improbable because it was very improbable that he would be as good as Justify was. Well, what did improbable do? What a grade one stakes as a two-year-old, as a four-year-old, the Eclipse Award-winning champion older male reeling off three straight grade one wins and then finishing second to stable made authentic in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Now improbable, standing stud at Windstar. His first yearling sold for up to $150,000 at Phasic Tipped in July, and he has four more entered in the prestigious Saratoga Select Sale. Two fillies, hips 14 and 98, and two colts, hips 91 and 235. He's from the immediate female family of hard spun and improbable bred 329 mares 
in his first two books. Now, the fastest horse of the week will surprise no one. Echo Zulu winning the honorable mistakes in six furlongs, 108.99. Buyer speed figure of 112. Honorable mention to New York Thunders, 110 in the Amsterdam. And Elite Powers, 108 buyer in the uh, Vanderbilt on Saturday. But right now, talking about Echo Zulu, Steve Asmussen and Connections have pointed out that they would not be reticent at all if the situation called for it to run Echo Zulu against the Colts. They think she'd be more brilliant, tougher to catch at six furlongs than at seven furlongs. The only problem is they also have Gunite pointing ultimately for the six furlong Breeders' Cup sprint. So it's a nice problem to have. But Echo Zulu, perhaps the best race of her career, that's saying a lot, a 112 buyer speed figure, the fastest horse of the week. And a lot happened last week off the track as well. TD, let's start with you for a couple of the items. First of all, the sentencing of Jason Service, the maximum four-year prison term. You've been covering this. What were some of the takeaways well, you had? The main takeaway is that we're done. Three and a half years. Almost everybody that was indicted or faced charges has been prosecuted. They're behind bars. They're serving their sentences. Some of them have already served their sentences. And uh, I guess the big question is, what is next? Will we uh, remember this when we rewind the film in uh, 10, 15, 20 years? and say, well, we had a big federal intervention and an FBI investigation. Almost 30 people went to jail, and then Heiser took over. Now, will that be a smooth segue or not? We don't know, but one question that is lingering is how much more of an enforcement uh, action can you expect from the federal government? They put a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of effort into this. Uh, the uh, Southern District of New York is one of the busiest and most active um, courts in, in the country for prosecuting top level federal crimes, are they going to have the appetite or the manpower to chase up and, uh, you know, go after other things that might pop up in this whack-a-mole type of uh, situation that we sometimes get with substance, uh, performance enhancing substance abuse in, in our sport? Um, you know, it's been a generation. The, the last big time that the feds got involved and prosecuted people was when a Boston gangster named Tony Shula was buying off riders up and down the East Coast. That was in 1975. And his prosecution and the related prosecutions took out, again, almost the same time frame, about three and a half, almost four years. What's going to happen now is the big question. And will, will something need to happen? Who knows, right? Now, you've also been following the Churchill Downs Incorporated situation pretty closely. CDI announced last week it had completed its internal investigation into the horse deaths this spring and found no definitive explanation, which I think was very predictable. I think we all could have seen that coming. But Churchill Downs also announced uh, a string of additional safety measures that it's going to uh, put into force at its upcoming September meeting. Your thoughts on those? I think those? they were also predictable. I think when we spoke about this issue two months ago on the show, we wondered if it was, um, you know, just if we were just witnessing an exercise in corporate risk management where they said, let's keep everybody stabling and training at Churchill but we're going to whisk everybody 175 miles west to run it at Ellis Park. It doesn't make sense on certain levels. Luckily, nothing adverse in terms of horse health happened with that. But there is what corporations say and how they say it. And I'll just give you an interesting takeaway here. Last Thursday, I covered what is the quarterly earnings conference call that Churchill Downs Incorporated has. It's a um, 
fairly standard format. Big corporations, they, they wheel out the dog and pony show, so to speak, once every quarter, and they explain. It's not Questioning is not open to journalists. It's investment bankers who are allowed to ask questions. Journalists can listen in. And I listened to Bill Karstangen, the CEO of, of CDI, Churchill Downs Incorporated, speak for 22 minutes with what he called high-level thoughts. Essentially, he was reading off of what sounded to me like a prepared script. And the, my takeaway was, you know, in our horse racing world, that was a big deal. Churchill Downs having to cease racing and shuttle everybody off to Ellis Park. It didn't even rate a mention in Mr. Karstangen's uh, high-level thoughts that he was saying to investors. <clears throat> Excuse me. He had one... Uh, you know, passing reference to the horses being shipped out to Ellis Park. But it took in the question and answer session, one of those investment bankers to say, hey, what about this thing? What, what were the ramifications of that? And that's when Bill Carstangen came out and said, well, we really found out that we don't have a definitive cause and that we will be making some changes, a little bit more veterinary oversight, a little bit of tweaking to some of the maintenance protocols. But after he revealed that by being asked by an investment banker, on Thursday, Churchill Downs then came out with the press release and said what was going to happen. So it was a big deal in our world, but it was apparently something that even during an earnings investment call that they wanted to minimize. Wow. And the upcoming meeting will resume or will begin as scheduled uh, on September the 14th at Churchill Downs. Now, Zoe, also big news in the first racing world, uh, announcing detailed plans about the closing of Golden Gate and the steps it intends to take to make it easier for Golden Gate workers to perhaps find jobs in Southern California. That lined a plan, which the plan, is, it's a it's a big, big plan. Now, there was an open letter in the TDN that Dan Roth wrote that asked an awful lot of questions. And it seems like they've all been answered, which is great. And the plan is in fall. I'm just going to read off the main bits. There is going to be a total of $31 million invested, and it's going to go, a million dollars is going to go to industry support funds. $4,500,000 are going to go to put in a synthetic training track where the original training track is. Now, that's on the inside of the main track. It's six furlongs around. A lot of the turf trainers will utilize that to work their turf horses on there, Phil D'Amato being one. That's going to be a significant investment, and that's a really good thing for Santa Anita because we were plagued with wet, willer, wind, wet weather all winter at Santa Anita, and the fact this will allow the trainers to train is going to be huge. Now, I don't know what kind of synthetic track they're going to put in. I'm sure Michael Dickinson's been on the phone. I'm sure several people have been in the phone on the phone, but that's a terrific investment as well as a one-mile turf shoot that will run from the north parking lot um, that's supposed to be $2.5 million. They're looking into investing into a swimming pool and a hydro pool, $500,000. And then the biggest thing of all would be the barn improvement program at Santa Anita, which they've allotted four years to do so. They're going to put $23 million into this. And I mean, much like many barn areas, they need updating, especially where the help lives. I mean, if you think about million-dollar athletes and where they're living, it's it's unbelievable at some tracks. You're like, oh, wow, my million-dollar horse is in here and the roof leaks. So they're going to put a lot of money into that, which is, is key for Santa Anita. And I think the biggest thing that it's answered 
to a lot of people at Santa Anita and Golden Gate Fields is the investment into Santa Anita. When we're talking about $30 million going into a racetrack, maybe we're going to stay alive for a little bit longer. To me, that's that's a good thing. I, I've got a little bit of job security there with 30 million being poured into Santa Anita. So it's a big thumbs up from me as far as the horses relocating from Golden Gate Fields. We'll see where they fit. They're, of course, going to have to move some down to San Luis Rey, which is a training facility down there. And some over at Los Alamitos, I'm sure, will boost some of their racing program as well. So the financial commitments made by First Racing, I think, are terrific. And we'll see how it goes moving forward. But uh, I'm very happy with that. I second that. I started to laugh when you mentioned a letter because I thought you were going to go to Senator <laughs> Diane Feinstein, which to me was uh, the most comical case of political grandstanding that I've seen in a long time. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about briefly, uh, Senator Feinstein released a letter her office did on Wednesday asking, imploring Belinda Stronach to provide additional information about Golden Gate and the steps it intends to take. This was Wednesday, right? The first racing release came out on Friday. There is a 0% chance that Feinstein's office did not know already that Santa Anita was working on this and was going to release it on Friday. They wanted to release theirs two days ahead of time to make it look like Santa Anita was responding, first racing, was responding to Feinstein so she would get the credit for, oh, look what I had first racing do. Look at this. I thought it was just, I mean, we've seen some bad politics in the past, and this is probably small potatoes, but you talk about uh, political opportunism. All right. Also, last week, Zoe, we talked about uh, the issues with the provisional suspensions from HISA and HIWU and how with Mac Robertson and the positive uh, test with the split sample coming back negative, maybe they might, might need to tweak the provisional suspensions somewhat. And that's exactly what they did. To Lisa Lazarus and her crew, because when we've had her on, she's like, we've done some things wrong, but we're willing to learn and they're willing to acknowledge when they've made mistakes, which is huge, because more often than not, people aren't willing to acknowledge the fact that they were wrong. And they were wrong in this instance. So the provisional suspension is gone. They will wait for the split to come back. It costs about $2,000 to get the B sample back. If that comes back positive, then you're screwed. Then then you're, you're basically out. But it does give you a chance to be innocent until proven guilty which is the number one thing that they were lacking. It's a very good thing. So kudos to them for getting for getting that right. I mean, there's many other things that maybe aren't right and aren't great, but you have to start somewhere. So that's well done. Meanwhile, the TD and Riders Room is also brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. A reminder that entries for the $1 million Pennsylvania Day at the Races will be taken Tuesday, July 15th at the Parks racing office this past monday and tuesday there were a pair of stakes races at prescott downs for older pennsylvania breads mile and 70 yards maldives model won the princess of silmar stakes on monday followed the next day by nice ace winning the hard spun for the second consecutive year princess of silmar bred by the arrowwood farm nice ace bred by the blackstone farm and of course our favorite pennsylvania bread caravelle is being pointed for the Troy Stakes at Saratoga this upcoming Saturday.
Coming up next, the Green Group Guest of the Week and a name and a face that you'll all be very familiar with. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA sired, PA bred two-year-olds at parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the Races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. Jockey's mental health has been a much-discussed topic this year, and in this week's Saratoga Minute, our Katie Petruniak attended a Jockey's Mental Welfare Summit at Saratoga. So we have this event here at the museum today, and thank you to the museum to, uh, to uh, allow us to do this in the museum. Uh, an event, uh, you know, is... We'll talk about mental health for jockeys, and not only for jockeys and the families uh, of jockeys, but also opening the doors for the rest of the industry. It was about, you know, jockey health, mental health, if you will, um, and talking about, you know, things that all the frustrations and ups and downs that jockeys and the families go through. Um, obviously, you know, depression hits everybody, uh, but when you're in a business that we are in, uh, the pressure is so much about making, just making enough money to, you know, to pay your rent. Not all roses like all the top jockeys, and I'm one of the, those, uh, one of the blessed ones that been very blessed to be here for this many years and, and have the, the kind of career that, that I have had. But we all go through the same pressure. We all go through the same thing. I'm the blessed one who, uh, with all my injuries and everything, still here riding and trying to help the less fortunate. And hopefully this, today kind of really hits uh, to people and, and the awareness, you know, that, that we, we got to do more for, for the jockeys. This Saratoga Minute was brought to you by Naira Bets. You can sign up now for Naira Bets and get a matching deposit of up to $200. Bet any track, anywhere, anytime. Just make a deposit within 30 days of signing up for your account. Bet twice the amount of that initial deposit and you'll receive a wagering credit matching that initial first deposit. You sign up with promo code SPA200 to get your deposit match today. The TD and Writers Room brought to you by The Green Group, a tax accounting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry, headed by Lynn Green, who probably at this very moment is handicapping the IRS tax code to try to figure out, and I'm going to channel my inner Jim Mackingbale here, how to save you money on your taxes. And now for our Green Group Guest of the Week. Lo and behold, my broadcast partner for 18 years, believe it or not, Mr. Jerry Bailey. Jerry, how's the golf game? What did you shoot this morning? I didn't play this morning. Uh, I didn't really have a good game this morning. Uh, I've been playing. It's, it's, it's golf, Randy. It's, some days it's great. Some days it's not so great. Are you feeling okay? You didn't play this morning. Oh, my God. All right. Let's 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 cut I, to the nitty gritty here. Prior commitments. Ah, okay, okay. So we've already discussed this at length. The uh, the Jim Dandy Forte Irad Ortiz. I know you watched it closely. Um, you and I tend to have different opinions often about potential fouls and potential disqualifications and all that. What were your thoughts on the no call for Forte? Thought it was a bad call. 
I, I thought he was the best horse in the race, but I thought he should have come down. Uh, the rules of racing state that if, if you are not clear of somebody and you change paths and you interfere with their progress, which he clearly did, then you should be disqualified. I mean, if you look at the chart, even the chart says he forced his way out. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, several pa- repeatedly bumping with the outside horse repeatedly. And then he came back in and it was negligent at the very end. But he came all the way back in and, and, and touched on uh, on Saudi crown as well. So, yeah, I, I thought he should have come down. Did, did it surprise you, uh, Brad Cox's comments, that he agreed with the call and that they left him up? Yeah, a couple things surprised me. First of all, that, that uh, Flavian Pratt didn't claim foul. Uh, I, I know he wasn't going to be the winner, but he was riding for Brad Cox who had the horse, the second place horse in there. And it did surprise me. But if you read Brad Cox's uh, further comments, um, he didn't think like that. That stuff should be allowed. I, I think, uh, again, paraphrasing, but he wasn't happy that riders are allowed to ride like that. And, and I totally agree. Look, it, you want as safe a product out on the track as you can possibly get for both horse and rider. And I'll tell you from experience, I went through it myself. I won't name the riders. But there were two or three in New York that the, that the stewards let get carried away and, and passed, go over the line repeatedly. And then the line gets farther and farther away and it gets more severe. And what happens is the riders take it into their own hands. If the stewards are not policing uh, the riders and enforcing the rules, then the riders are left to police themselves. And that is not a good situation. Is that what happened in the situation that you're referring to? No, I, well, I, no, I, I don't think that that the steward, the stewards, I think, should have taken the number down by not taking that number down. They're they're saying it's OK to do that kind of stuff. So next week, next month, whatever, you're going to have other riders doing the same thing that Arad Ortiz did. And you're going to have Arad Ortiz doing it more and more and more and, and being more flagrant about it. You, you only have to go back a couple of years in December at Aqueduct and watch his performance in a couple of stakes that the, on the late December weekend. And he was out of control that weekend, and they gave him 30 days for that. So those are the kind of things that end up happening when you don't make the riders follow the rules. Is the is the controversy at a different level because Irad is involved? He's often, uh, as you mentioned, that that was the Remsen week, Stakes weekend. Um, and it seems to just uh, get heated up a notch more when, it, when it's Irad involved. Is that, is that uh, fair to say? No, I think it's not fair to say. I think it gets ratcheted up when you have a rider going that far over the line. It happened to be IRAD in both cases. But any rider should be subject to the same rules. And if he goes that far over, then, then, then there's going to be headlines. Obviously, the headlines are going to be a little bolder when it's a, a rider like IRAD with a, uh, a reputation of being a leading rider of the country, leading rider in New York. Of course, they'll be, the voices will be a little bit louder. But it's the it's it's the same basic philosophy. You let the writers get away with too much and they will take it. So, Jerry, you mentioned your earlier experience uh, without naming names where a couple of writers were uh, were taking things over the line and the stewards were allowing them to do it. In that situation, in your recollection, did the jockeys take matters into their own hands? And how was that done? Hell, yes. Retaliation. It's exactly how it's done. And I was the, the I was one of the retaliators, 
And it's not good. It's not good. I'm just telling you. I'm going to give you an example. The writer came into the steward's office after flagrantly shutting somebody off into the far turn at Aqueduct one, one year. And he blamed it on the horse outside of or his horse changing leads. Well, he just shut the guy off on the rail is what happened. And so he suggested to the stewards that they paint arrows on the rail when you get close to the turn so that these riders know to give more room because the turn's coming up. They painted arrows on the rail. I mean, come on. They did? Yes, they did. Really? Are you kidding me? I'm not. I, you can't make this stuff up, Zoe. This happened. Dr. Gilman was one of the stewards. So what kind of retaliation did did you give? That was going to be my next question. Like retaliation. Did you, you take these guys? You, you set a trap. You set a trap. You stay off the rail. And when this guy runs up inside, you, you shut him off. And you look for you set it up to happen. Because if he keeps taking advantage of you repeatedly without consequences, that's your only recourse. On the other side of, of retaliation, uh, maybe taking this back, Jerry, to when you were first breaking in as a younger rider, uh, jockeys are unique among athletes because they want to teach their brethren, the up and coming riders, the rules of the road, so to speak, because everybody's safety is involved. Aside from retaliation, when riders are young and they're just coming up through the system, how, how do the more veteran uh presences in the jockey's room establish what the, the code of safety is going to be out there. And uh, can you remember a time when you got some good advice from a senior rider when you were just breaking in? Sure. Great question. Uh, the first set of days I got, I only got about five sets of days in 31 years. But the first set of days I got was for running up in between horses down the backside and crowding. There was a spot, but it, I did make it more crowded when my horse ran up in there. And I got seven days for it. And I learned right then let let there be breathing room between horses. Um, and the best way to teach young riders is to pull them off to the side and go over the video with them immediately after the race. If you can, if temper, if tempers allow a lot of times, you know, the blood pressure level is up a little bit right after a race. But the best race is to go over the films with these kids. But the kids have to be teachable. A lot of times they are. Sometimes they're not. So in the case of the retaliation with you and the other riders, did it work? Did Angel Cordero kind of cool off a little bit after that? <laughs> uh, yes, it works. It, it, it works. So aside from retaliation on the racetrack, I've been in plenty of jocks room and there's always a little bit of fighting, a little bit of scrimmaging, name calling afterwards. Did you ever get involved in that? I mean, were you the first to throw a punch maybe a couple times or not? I went after Antley one time and I had to knock Migliori out of the way to get to him because Richie was going <laughs> after him at the same time. So uh, that's no kidding. But yeah, it, 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 it rarely comes to, to fighting in there, although it does ha happen. Uh, you know, it's not unheard of. Let's put it like that. Uh, you know, usually the fact that they know that you're going to retaliate if they keep getting you on a routine basis, that's generally enough, and especially if you actually do it. Jerry, um, kind of getting back to the breaking into the game and the teaching of young riders, you've been out of the saddle now for a while, and uh, you've seen essentially pretty much half a generation, almost a whole generation of new riders coming up through the ranks. How is it different than when you were breaking in back in the mid-1970s? Harder, easier, different in, in certain respects? What, what's your take on that? I don't know that it's that it's harder or easier. I think it's different. Um, it, it seems to me like 
we had a lot more foundation when we came up when I when I was a young rider. I mean, look look at I walked horses, I rubbed horses, I galloped horses for three or four years before I even rode a race. Uh, I rode bush tracks around Texas, uh, not to the extent that a lot of other guys did, but I but I had a, a dozen or so races before I even rode a, a paramutual race. And, and around Texas, Louisiana, and New Mexico, that was commonplace. Um, now they have jockey schools elsewhere, which we did not have, which would I guess uh, accomplish the same thing. Um, but I think. It's just, at least it's my perception that the basic horsemanship might have been better back in the day than it is now. Not necessarily gate to wire, but horsemanship in general and being able to tell a trainer when you get off a horse, if there's a problem, where the problem might be on the horse. I was going to ask you if Eddie Arcaro was nice to you in the jockey's room, but I've used that joke before, so I won't, I won't, I won't go there, Jerry. <laughs> um. What do you miss the most about being in the saddle? Obviously not these situations that we're talking about right now with retaliation and guys like Ired Ortiz, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there, there have got to be some things that you really miss about it. What, what, what are they? I miss winning. I mean, to, to me, that's what it was all about. Uh, I grew up with horses, but I got in the game to compete. And the thrill of winning and the adrenaline rush that it gave me um, was what motivated me. Uh, look, I would, it, it's, it's easier to win by three or four on a six to five shot that's circling the field, but I got much more of adrenaline rush coming up the rail uh, and winning races sometimes that maybe I wasn't supposed to win or had to do exactly what I did to win. And it's that rush that is the one thing that I miss. Um, the competitive juice is flying. That's why I play golf. I mean, it's not nearly the same thing, but it's the competition. Terry, you are an extremely competitive guy. I think anyone that knows you can see that. With all the new rules and regulations that have been going on as of late, the whip rule, we know that you've been for the whip rule. How do you think you would fare now riding like you used to ride? Because you're one of the strongest finishers in the game that I've ever seen. Yeah, that's a good question, Zoe, because I was an avid user of the whip. I've admitted that, even though I, I think that, look, let's get this straight first. I've advocated for no whip because I think it's so hard to remember how many times you've hit a horse or how high you've raised your shoulder, whatever the rules might be in a particular state. And they varied from state to state for a long time. Uh, I would have found it difficult to keep track. You know, and so that that's why I came up with the opinion. It's so hard to do that. And one rider might take advantage, even though the lim limit is six. You know, let me hit him eight times just to beat you by a nose that it was extremely unfair. And I thought, well, just just take it away. You know, if you just take it away, then everybody's on a level playing field. And I've always been an advocate that the reins are the best steering mechanism for any jockey on a horse. The whip to me is a poor excuse for guiding a horse. You know, to me, it's, it's the reins. I, I think I would have tried to adapt to a certain degree. Um, I, I think I think the whip sometimes is, is a lazy way to win a race. Uh, it is much more physical and much harder to hand ride a horse all the way through the stretch with very little whipping than it is to just resort to the whip. You and I have also talked about the public image that it creates for people that might not necessarily be hardcore horse racing fans. 
to see, you know, I'm just going to, it's probably not fair just to pull out one example, but, you know, Victor Espinosa hitting American Pharaoh 25 times uh, in the run through the stretch of the Kentucky Derby, things like that. Yeah. yeah so it's a good point, Randy, because I now have the, the, have had the opportunity to see it from, from a different angle for many, many years now. So I've got two different perspectives here. And I also said that I would have been the first guy to scream, don't take my whip away. Because I said I was an avid user of the whip. So I, I want to get that out there. I want to clarify that right away. Um, but seeing it now from the other side, you know, most of my friends now are non-racing friends. Uh, and so I get a perspective from people that only watch five days of racing a year, the three triple crown races, you know, the Breeders' Cup, the Breeders Cup two days, and that's it. And uh, I get a lot of the, why do they whip the horses? They say they want to run, so why do they have to whip them? Um, so I, I, I see, I understand the perception of a lot of the public thinking it's cruel and unusual. Any, any, even though I don't think it particularly hurts a horse, the perception is that, it, that it's inhumane. Um, so I, I, my opinions have been formed now from getting other opinions other than what I heard around the racetrack. I want to point out something, and this is on the forte thing of the other day. There's a lot of perception out there that racing is not very transparent. Be it from the Navarro service stuff, the drugs that were involved, people screaming, well, we're not, you know, we're not abusing horses. We're not giving horses drugs. When it comes out years later, of course they were giving, you know, banned substances. So when I go back to watch a race like the Jim Dandy, and Naira or First or Churchill has already taken the video down, I am incensed. They took the video down on Rebels Romance the other day in the bowling green. I wanted to see what I had to go to YouTube and I did find it. But to me, that's not being transparent to the public. And the less transparent you are, builds less trust with the public that you're trying to encourage to trust you to run a great sport. So I have a problem with that. That's a good point there. We've been we've been selecting selectively editing out uh, portions of important races now for a couple of years. And it is something that does stand out. Uh, I wanted to get back to your point about competition and the competitive juices that flow. And, yeah. you know, when you were coming down the stretch, this is a hypothetical comp, uh, question, two parts for you. When you looked over your shoulder, who was the one rival that you did not want to see and get hooked up in a stretch duel with? And that's all the guys that you wrote and men and women that you wrote against. And also, now that you're watching it again from a different vantage point, who is the contemporary writer who you would say, "Uh oh, geez, I don't want to get hooked up with this person. I'll take the last question first. It would be it would probably be Joel Rosario. To, to me, he's like he's the pin. He's the, the this generation's pin guy. He's really strong. He doesn't resort to the whip much. It's mostly arms and shoulders. And he's a strong rider. Um Back in my day, Angel was the toughest competitor I competed with daily. You know, I didn't ride, ride with Lafitte on a, on a daily basis. And uh, although he was is stronger than any other rider in the country, but it would be Angel. But it wasn't Angel that I looked over my shoulder, you know, and worried about. He was usually in front of me, you know, carrying guys out or carrying me out. Or he, that's the kind of stuff that Angel would do. Uh, you know, and, and most of the times within the rules, you know, as I said previously, he would cross the line sometimes, but he was, he was really, really good. 
at taking it to the line without crossing it a lot of the times. I'm, I'm sure Lafitte Pinkai wouldn't agree on the Belmont with uh, caveat, but uh, of course he crossed the lines uh, often enough to be annoying, but the majority of the time he would do it within the lines. All right, I'm going to lighten it up a little bit. You missed the competition, et cetera, et cetera. I know from talking to you in the past, you also missed the camaraderie that existed in the jockey's room for a while. Yeah. The best practical joke that you were around and either against you or to somebody else that you can actually talk about. <laughs> okay. There's a couple, but I'll, I'll pick one of them. So it was one of the years I was riding at Monmouth park. So it had to be 78 or 79. And there was a certain jockey that would go to the snack bar and eat like crazy and then go in there and he'd, he'd flip, he'd heave. And they only had two stalls at Monmouth. So Brian Fan went in and put two sets of jocks boots in the stalls, <laughs> facing out as if somebody were in there using the toilet. And so this particular jockey, predictable enough, filled up and he rode the first race. So he had limited time to get rid of all this food that he just ate. <laughs> And he was pacing back and forth, banging on the stalls of, of the toilets, saying, hey, guys, I ride the first race. Somebody's got to come out of here. I've got to heave. Uh, that was the funniest time, the funniest moment I think I ever saw in my life because it was so dramatic and it was so urgent. That is very funny. All right, I've got another one for you. What are the daftest set of instructions that you ever got while you were riding? We've, we've heard some crazy ones, but I'm sure that you have some. Yeah, I've got I've got one that, that that always stands out above the rest. Um, I was riding a filly at Aqueduct. It was in the winter. I only stayed one winter, so it had to be like eighty six or eighty seven, something like that. And she was a speed filly that always stopped. I could see that on the form. I'd never ridden her before. I don't remember who the trainer was, but I went into the paddock, and he said, "Listen, this this filly's kind of hyper. She kind of a runoff." And I said, "Yeah, I could I could see that on the form." And he said, uh, the best way to settle her down is to sing to her. And I thought, are you serious? And he said, yes, if you could sing to her about, down the backstretch, she really, if the girl that gets on her sings to her and she settles right down in the morning. I said, All right, I'll give it a shot. And the only song I could think of was Jingle Bells. So I was singing Jingle Bells down the backside on this filly at Aqueduct in the winter. <laughs> Obviously, work. the trainer had never heard you sing, right? <laughs> did, it, did it work? Did it work? Apparently, yes. It did not work. Oh. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even know if Randy's heard that story before. In the in the subset of horses that you never had to sing to, which is pretty much everybody else, uh, what is the one ride of your life that stands out? What is what is your defining ride, defining horse, defining race? Well. Look, look, the defining horse would be Cigar, but I was probably just a good passenger, you know, most of the time on him. Um, because it was the Derby, I would say probably Grindstone. Sea Hero was, I thought, I'm pretty proud of that ride, but because Grindstone won by nose, um, I would have to say Grindstone. And what do you remember the you most? Have, you have to take into context the, the race itself. Um, just a wall of horses down the backside being so far back because 
he was a horse that previously, like he won the Louisiana Derby. He was second in the Arkansas Derby, but he would place me in a race mid-pack at worst. Uh, he was aggressive enough. I, I wouldn't have a, a, a tremendous amount of ground to make up. And in the Derby, he was like 16, I think. So he was much further back than he had ever been before. Um, so there was a lot more to do with a lot more horses to get through. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was never really panic time, but, um, there was a concern heading up the backside that, um, every, everything had to go right to win. And, and it did. If you could do over one race, what would it be, Jerry? Oh, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it would have to be the Pacific classic. Um, but look at, um, I, 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 and, and I don't know. I mean, I've, re, I've rerun that race. Now, in, in the last 18 years, obviously, I've missed a few years thinking about it because time heals all. But um, in, in the first month, I, I, you know, five times a day, I'd rerun that race in my mind. And I really don't know what I would have done differently um, because Siphon had just beaten another horse that I'd ridden named Jerry at, at Hollywood Park. And so I, and he beat me because I let him get away on the lead too long. So I knew I couldn't let Siphon get away. Um, and then Nakatani was trying to keep me in uh, all the way down the stretch in the first turn. So I thought the last thing I want to have happen is to just give it up, tuck in behind Siphon, let him slow the pace down, and he's going to kick away from me, turn for home, and I'll never get him. So I kept trying to keep my space, but in doing that, I had to ask Cigar to run faster and faster and faster around the first turn, halfway down the backside, just to keep Nakatani from uh, trapping, me, boxing me in behind Siphon. And, and look, at, I, look, I get it. Uh, I did that a million times myself to guys, you know, trying to beat him. Uh, I had the target on my back with Cigar, and it's everybody else's job to try and beat me, and everybody played within the rules, but... Uh, it was a, it, to me, it was a no win scenario. Um, and I thought the last thing I wanted to do was get cigar trapped and never give him a chance to get out and, and, and run. And I also kind of had thought he was bulletproof by then. I, I didn't think there was much that that horse couldn't do, uh, by that point. And, and maybe a year earlier, he could have withstood that and still won. But at that time in his career, that was too much for me to ask. So. I don't know if I could have done anything different, but that's the one I'd like to have over. Um, what's the dynamic like working with Randy Moss? How, how is that? I mean, you two are like brothers on the set. Give me, give me some examples. I mean, yeah, it's like a security blanket. We're, <laughs> um, we we, we're best we don't disagree often. We are best friends, but when we do disagree, I mean, we still disagree about California Chrome and the Belmont. And that's uh, how many years ago? 11? Long time ago. Uh, yeah. I forgot what year yeah. it was now. 2012. Yeah. I, I still think Victor had no other choice but to tuck in, and Randy still thinks he should have got him out. So we'll go to our graves disagreeing about that one. But it's amazing that I'll sit in Fort Lauderdale, and he'll be up in Minneapolis or uh, Prior Lake, and we'll look at the same race and come to the same conclusion without ever talking to each other. Uh, and, and the latest story, we, if we have time for it, Randy is... Sure, go ahead. 
he texted me one night. He said, I've got the winner of the, of the, um, the race at, at Churchill, the, the grass race before the Kentucky Derby. Um, right. Whatever that's good. The Woodford Reserve. Right. And Turf so flat. I looked yeah. in the, you know, I hadn't gone over it yet. I, said, I know exactly, I know exactly who it is. And it was the same horse. It, we have similar senses of humor too, Zoe. So we, we crack each other up like all the time and it, it, it starts to worry the producers after a while. Uh, one quick one, there was one show, I think we were at Belmont and we were coming right on with the race and we were like one minute, 45 seconds to air. And one of the horses we were covering that we were going to talk about was a horse named Peej, P-E-E-J. And so Jerry leans over to me with his past performances and points to the horse and says, how do you pronounce this horse's name? And I said, the J is silent. And he said, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then he looks down at a sheet and sees P-E-E-J, the J is silent and just absolutely, absolutely loses it. And then he starts cracking up and then I lose it. And the producer's like, Four, 10 seconds there. Are you guys going to be okay? And there are tears coming down both of our faces, you know, but we somehow made it anyway. The reason I've lasted 18 years is because we have fun. Yeah. That's the reason. Well, fun today as well. Thanks for taking the time, my man. Thank you, guys. Nice speaking with you. As the Green Group Guest of the Week, Jerry Bailey will receive a free one-hour tax consultation from Lynn Green and the Green Group. For more information on how they can save you money on your taxes, log on to www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonderwheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. Honor AP, a mesmerizing horse from the very beginning, who captured the imagination of the racing world and proved his potential on the track. A grade one winner, out of a multiple grade one winner, with incomparable looks and an unbeatable pedigree. The speed, the bloodline, the physical. Honor AP, only at Lane's End. The TDM Writers' Room is brought to you by Lane's End. This week's Lane's End Sire of the Week is Honor AP. And my goodness, is he a good-looking horse. His first yearling sell this year. Honor AP was a top-selling yearling from Honor Code's first crop, bringing 850000 at the 2018 Saratoga sale. I still remember seeing him in that barn to this day. He was absolutely gorgeous. He broke his maiden on debut as a two-year-old and was a very easy winner of the Santa Anita Derby for trainer John Sheriffs. Look for hit number 99, his colt, selling with tailor-made sales at this year's Basic Tipton Saratoga sale. 
So a fantastic last week of racing in Saratoga and Del Mar. And now we look ahead to what's coming up this weekend, including uh, a day on Saturday at Saratoga where they card five stakes races, three big ones that we'll talk about here. Let's start with the Whitney uh, TD Cody's wish. We'll try to stretch that. Uh, I don't want to say speed because he's a come from behind her, but uh, stretch his uh, abilities to a mile and an eighth for only the second time in his career, the first time since he was a maiden uh, way back in July of 2021. Uh, your thoughts on Cody's wish at the longer distance and whether that might make him vulnerable or not? Yeah, I don't know if it's the longer distance that makes him vulnerable. What makes him vulnerable in my eyes is that he is a drop back, loop the group and just finish with authority type of horse. And that doesn't, you know, it's worked for him extremely well so far, obviously, but he's been outclassing the competition so much. Certainly he can outclass the competition again today because they're having, tr uh, on Saturday, because they're having trouble finding horses uh, who he hasn't already beat before to run against him. The two, three, and four horses that he beat in the Met Mile are coming back. Uh, Zandon with Joel Rosario replacing Flavian Pratt on Saturday. White Abario ran third in the Met Mile. And uh, Charge It, uh, who ran fourth in that race and then uh, just won the uh, 10 furlong Suburban in an absolute canter, he could be a speed threat at nine furlongs. Last horse to double up and win the Met Mile and the Whitney was Frosted back in 2016, another good dolphin color bearer. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's going to be uh, the distance getting to Cody's wish so much as how the pace shakes out and whether or not, you know, you... You, you, run, you, you try that move coming from off the tailgate and, and passing everybody widest on the turn off enough, it's going to bite you one of these times. So we'll see what happens. Zoe, Zoe do you trust Charge It at this point? But having watched him train here at Saratoga, I can't talk you off of him. Honestly, he's training like an absolute bear. I think he likes this track. Watching him get over the track, I love Cody's wish, and I have it on good authority that young Cody Dorman is going to be here. They're going to fly him in. Oh. Um, so that's great. He's never lost with Cody there. He's going to come in and see the race. He's trained phenomenally. Now, Bill always trains him over on the Oklahoma track, so you can catch his works on XBTV. They're not on the main track. They're always on the training track. His last work was just what Bill wanted. I mean, of course, you've never heard a trainer really say that's not what I wanted, but it was perfect. He went off nice and easy under Neil Poznanski and finished up. So it's Cody's wish race to lose. I'm not worried about the two turns for him whatsoever, but I am worried about Charge It. I, yes, the Suburban was a terrible race and he was miles the best in that race, but he's trained so darn well here. Uh, you know, we're not going to have West Will Power. He's not going in there. Uh, it just I just keep going back to charge it. And I don't know why, because I can't really say that his suburban would talk me on him. The only thing that can talk me on to him is the fact that he trains so darn well over this track. But I'm all for Cody's wish in there. All right. One of the other grade one races on Saturday, the test stakes for three-year-old fillies at seven furlongs, according to the racing office. As we tape this now on Tuesday afternoon, entries aren't actually taken until tomorrow, until Wednesday. But they're expecting 
Pretty Mischievous, the Kentucky Oaks winner, the undefeated Maple Leaf Mel, who's five for five, Money's Gold, who's trying to bounce back from a couple of disappointing runs or at least losses after starting her career so quickly, the gutsy Dorth Vader, uh, clearly unhinged out from Santa Anita, who's got a lot of ability, and then a couple of other long shots, a few other long shots in here. Uh, TD, I know Maple Leaf Mel is going to get a lot of action because she's five for five, just won the victory ride at Belmont. I think she's a bet against. I wouldn't be surprised to see her win, but she's going to be facing much tougher competition, much tougher pace pressure than she's ever had to face before. And I think it's an opportunity to try to take advantage of that potential vulnerability. What do you think uh, about the race? I, I agree with you on that, but the question is who? It's. Uh, I, I think a lot of the race hinges on pretty mischievous. She was the victress in the Kentucky Oaks. Remember, she broke from way outside in the outside post gave up a lot of ground and was able to deliver the goods at nine furlongs. Then she cut back to a mile and a 16th in the acorn, her next start on the day before the Belmont stakes. And uh, she had a really hard time shrugging free from Dorth Vader and putting her away in that race. Now she's cutting back to seven furlongs. Ordinarily something that I would not be too crazy about nine furlongs, mile and a 16th, seven trainer, Brendan Walsh, however, says, he thinks seven furlongs has a chance to be her sweet spot. Uh, he thinks that her high cruising speed is going to suit her well, getting back around one turn in that race. Uh, I might have to throw my weight behind Money's Gold in here. She was the beaten favorite in the Acorn. She ran fourth on that afternoon. She, to me, seems like much more of a pure sprinter. She's a little bit of a headstrong sort, however. Two races back, uh, when she ran second in the Eight Bells, she uh, was put away, and then she came back and just bobbed for the win. She was on the wrong side of the losing photograph there. But I, I think of the ones that we're, that we're going to see here who, who line up at seven furlongs, uh, she looks to be more – she looks to be best suited to that distance for me. At the quarter pole at the acorn, she looked like a winner, Zoe. She was a length and a half in front and looked like she was cruising, and then maybe the distance just got her. I, I'm right with you. Um, I think it's going to be an upset. It, Maple Leaf Mel is a great story. Mel Melanie Giddens, beaten cancer. That's her first stakes win. Coach Parcells, great story. I just think she might be a cut below some of these. And I would root for her to win. As far as pretty mischievous, she's very laid back. Watching her work in the morning, Brendan Walsh comes up on the roof with the walkie-talkie to not only his exercise rider, but also a rad when he worked her last time out. She just breaks off so easily and she almost goes too slow at the beginning of her works. I'm not sure that seven furlongs is going to be great to her. I think Dorf Vader cutting back to one turn since uh, Weaver's been training her. She looks like a different filly. She's not leaving it on the racetrack in the morning before you'd see her works 34 and change 46. We know she's fast. She's wickedly fast. She's much better about around one turn than she is around two turns. Watching her work in the mornings here, she looks like she's put on weight. I'm not saying Michael Yates did a horrible job with her. He did a great job with her for John Ropes. John Ropes still owns her now. George Weaver's doing a fantastic job with her. Slowed her down in the morning, and I think that's really helped her in the afternoon. Her last race, when she gave it all to Pretty Mischievous, was good. I think this race is going to be better. 
I really like Dolph Nader. And she's a fighter, too. She is pretty tenacious. She's kind of entertaining to watch. Now, also, the Belmont, excuse me, the Saratoga Derby. I almost said Belmont Derby because we have the Belmont Derby winner in there, Far Bridge, as well as the third-place finisher in the Belmont Derby, Mondigo, who set a very slow pace that day, and then Web Slinger, fourth-place finisher. Chad Brown expected to go with Seth Klarman's program trading, who is two for two. Uh, Zoe, we don't really have any strong, you know, Charlie Appleby Europeans making the trip over. Uh, one lower level European, it's going to be a long shot lion of war. Uh, what did you think about Farbridge and his win in the Belmont Derby? I think we're going to be cheering on those LSU colors once more. And we'll be talking about the story again with those trademark colors being on the back of the jockey's back on Farbridge. I think he's the winner. And he's trained terrifically as well for Todd. I think it's Todd's turn to win this. Right. I I did this before the Belmont Derby, and I'm going to go back to it one more time. I mean, I definitely think Farbridge is the horse to beat. Okay, But if you're a trip handicapper and you go back and you watch the Belmont Derby, Farbridge gets through on the inside almost all the way around, certainly all the way around the second turn. Cut the corner, got through along the rail, came out for the stretch, closed in 22-4 and for the final quarter, ran great coming off a slow pace that should have hurt his chances. Web Slinger was even farther back than Farbridge was, was four to five wide around the second turn while Farbridge was on the rail, was fanned about six wide at the top of the stretch and only finished like a length and a half or so behind Farbridge at the wire. I mean, I think Web Slinger, who's probably going to be, you know, five, six to one, um, maybe a little lower than that, but I think he is a, He's an excellent play uh, for you trip handicappers out there. TD, I know you're a trip handicapper as well. Yeah, I think you you stole my script there because, uh, you know, I, I will live and buy, die by those type of horses who uh, really catch the eye. And a lot of times I burns my bankroll, but that's his M.O. That's what he's been doing since he's been blossoming this year as a three-year-old, spotting the field plenty, winding up, making one one big move. And sometimes he has to uh, fight through traffic and sometimes he takes the overland route. And Zoe Adele Mar, the Clement Hirsch for Phillies and Mares. Mile and a 16th, Adair Manor's probably going to be, if she goes, we think she's going to go. Again, they draw on Wednesday. We're taping this on Tuesday. She'll be three to five, four to five. But you think she may be a little vulnerable in there. Don't ask me why. I know she just won her last start. And you'll see her in the paddock. She's a big, beautiful filly. Stands at least 17 hands. But if window shopping goes, I like her. I really do for Dick Mandela. And Mandela's on a tear right now. I think she's going to put it to Adair Manor. I really do. We'll have to wait and see. I don't think it's a terrific rendition of the Clement Hirsch. I've seen better in the past. And um, Adair Manor will be the overwhelming favorite for Hall of Famer Bob Baffert. But I'm going to go with window shopping. So who caught your eye with the uh, XBTV work of the week this week? To be Maple Leaf Mel. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. And this week's work of the week is Maple Leaf Mel. Seen working here with Sean Bridgman, no less in the irons. He gets on her in the morning, and this is him working her right now. She is trained by Melanie Giddings. She went 49-1 over the main track solo as she points to this Saturday's test. All eyes will be on her. She's a perfect 5-for-5. Five five. Last seen taking down the grade 3 victory ride stakes at Belmont for shipping to the spa. We'll see if the sentimental favorite can get it done. We'll be right back after this message. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. 
experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TD and Riders Room, also brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie. This week, West Point provided one of the more emotional stories of the week when they won Sunday's opener at Saratoga with a horse named Carson's Run. Now, we've already talked about Cody Dorman, how he might be at Saratoga for the Whitney to watch Cody's Wish. What an emotional scene that always is. Cody Dorman, of course, suffers from Wolf Hirschhorn Syndrome. Well, the same uh, the same disease also affects a young man named Carson Yost, whose father was a classmate at West Point of Terry Finley. And that is why this horse was named Carson's Run. Uh, Yost's father uh, thought his son would benefit from having a horse to root for. And he went in on a West Point partnership on the horse. And the Yost family and the Dorman family have already been communicating with each other uh, about their uh, their shared experiences and what a story it could be if Carson's run continues on his winning ways. He will point next for the great three with anticipation on turf August the 31st at the spa. Special thanks, obviously, to Zoe and TD and to our guest, Jerry Bailey, as well as our own Katie Petruniak, Anthony LaRocca, Ali LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. You guys have any more pearls of wisdom to add here before we leave? Don't leave me hanging here. Don't run with scissors, maybe. What? Pardon was Al Dougal's out there coughing up a lung. You can't see him, oh, but yeah, well. he's coughing up a lung in the uh, background. Where's, where's, where's Lucy? Yeah, where is she? Lucy! There she is. She's alive. She's in a different. All right, guys. Thanks. We'll see you all next week. And Bill, Grace, uh, gratefully, will be back in the saddle.